Did I tell you what I'm doing? I guess I you, did tell you. You went for an event, to, you went to live interpret and then you came back the same no, day? No, 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 no. I just arrived in Austin. No, I'm here for five days for this, for this really big music and film festival. Oh, and nice. there's a, there's a Brazilian filmmaker who is coming with the, the production company and she doesn't speak English. So I get to go around to all these meetings with producers and filmmakers <laughs> and, and wow. interpret for her. Yeah. It's, it's pretty exciting. I'm like a little starstruck about it. So, This is Localization Today, a podcast from multilingual media. Every week, we look back on the news from multilingual.com with a language industry specialist. What stood out? What are notable trends? How can we predict what is going to happen next? I am your host, Marjolein Groot-Nibbelink, publisher of Multilingual Magazine. Elena Langdon is an interpreter and translator with a bachelor's in journalism and political science from Indiana University, Bloomington, as well as a master in arts and translation studies from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. She is also a staff writer for Multilingual Magazine. Elena, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, tell me about getting a master's degree in arts and translation studies. The two could not seem less connected, but perhaps I'm wrong. Well, it's actually, it's a master of arts in translation studies. So the field, yeah, the field is translation studies, but I can, I can tell you a little bit about that if you want. Absolutely. Please do. Yeah. It was, that program is housed in the wider department of comparative literature. And so it's a program that focuses more on theory and working between languages and cultures, as opposed to the practice of translation. So it's, it's that kind of a course, whereas a lot of master degrees, well, not a lot of them, I should say, but some of them focus on the practice. Like Kent University has a very good master's, but it's more how to become a translator or an interpreter. And this one is more kind of the theory behind it, which they do more in comparative literature. Interesting. And so when it says art, it doesn't translate to um you know making drawing pictures and making little movies no it mean in the in in the united states it's either you can get a master of arts or you can get a master of science and actually you can get a master's in business administration you can you know so that particular title is an ma because it's a master in arts whereas some translation programs might be a master in science if it's linguistics or something else, you might get a master's in science. That's huh. what it is. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. I had no idea. We're going to look at some of the news that's been published on multilingual.com over the last two weeks. Of course, the war in Ukraine has been taking up a lot of space and both on our news cycle, but also in our minds. Uh, do you want to start off by sharing a little bit about your your feelings around it um do you know anybody there can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on the situation as a as an interpreter as a linguist yeah i i mean it's a it's a really sad tragic situation um and it's you know it's been on everyone's minds yeah but um no i don't know anybody personally in ukraine but i you know just thinking about that situation and being in an interpreter having to go through that just 
with the emotions, if you, whether you're in Ukraine or you're an immigrant somewhere, mm-hmm. um, it's gotta be really difficult. The, a lot of the interpreters at the hospital that I worked at for years who interpreted for Russian were actually Ukrainian. And I haven't been able to speak to them, but you know, they've been here in the United States for a really long time. Uh, but I think for anyone who has an emotional tie to the country, it's just got to be really difficult to have to be in the midst of it and interpreting it. You know, when we, when we train interpreters, um, you know, I teach at UMass Amherst and, um, and at Glendon College at York University, and I, I train interpreters, and we talk a lot about how to distance yourself mm-hmm. and how to keep from your opinions and your beliefs and your values and your experiences from affecting the message, yeah. right? So that we're not we're not invisible and we're not people who are neutral. I mean, we we have mm-hmm. we have our own feelings, we have our own opinions, and and our own traumas, but we we try not to get, let that get in the way. And there's different ways that you can deal with that, but there are some things that are just too much. Yeah. This kind of already answers the first question I was going to ask, which was about the um, Ukrainian interpreter, Katarina Ritzka-Kul, whom we at Multilingual had the honor of, of hosting a conversation with. And this Ukrainian German interpreter went viral on social media after breaking into tears while interpreting a press conference by Ukrainian President Zelensky. It happened again later when Zelensky was speaking at the European Parliament and another interpreter started crying. Now, for many, both inside and outside the language industry, the vulnerable moment was a reminder of the often difficult circumstances interpreters endure in their jobs. She said, of course, I know how to distance myself, but sometimes you just can't because it's too much. And when we talked with her, she also mentioned that she had been on call for 10 days straight uh, since the start of the war because she had the unique position that she could interpret with the language pairs English-Ukrainian, English-German, and German-Ukrainian. So she had the ability to be there as only one of two certified interpreters. So she was on that stuff the entire time. So my question to you is, do you identify with those calling for a more professional interpreter or can you empathize with Katarina's emotions? And I think you already answered the question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. That, that was a good, a good reminder because the fact is like working that many days in a row takes, you know, it just takes a toll on you anyway. And then you don't, you're not able to use the tools that can help you remain impartial, that can help you kind of keep those emotions at bay while you interpret, Um, you know, get, get enough sleep, get, you know, stay well-nourished, get rest. Those are just the basic wellness tips that can help people do a better job anywhere. Right. And the, the less we sleep, the more we work, the more emotional we get. And I really don't think, um, I don't even think it's a distinction about being professional versus being emotional. I think it's any, any professional goes through moments where it is, like she said, it is, it is too much. And in the end, she didn't falter. It was at the very end. Mm -hmm. She stumbled, then she caught it and, and, and kept going. Um, And also it doesn't, 
what she, her reaction to it doesn't change the message. And that's another thing is that I think some people weren't focusing on that so much. So what the president, you know, what Zelensky was saying was kind of like a call for unity, if not mistaken, you know, kind of like we're, this is, you know, we can do this, we're strong. And I think her emotional reaction to that was very much in line with with what he's feeling and with anybody identifying with him, it would be very strange and and considered inaccurate if she was saying that with a completely different bent to it, if she was saying it mockingly, for example, or if she, you know, said it just kind of with this aloof or ridiculous tone in her voice, then you have a, you know, then you have an interpreter who's in, you know, not being impartial and who's affecting the meaning of the message, but she wasn't really because the message was a very strong message with an emotional content. I mean, imagine what, what it's like for Zelensky to be in that position. So um, I think she was, she was, she is a professional and in that moment had to just take a breather because it was a little bit too much, but it happens. I mean, it's, it's happened to me in, in bizarre bizarre circumstances with which I had no connection to what the person was going through Mm -hmm. and I still got emotional. And I think it's because when we're interpreting, we're voicing this person and to understand and to really connect with their meaning, you have to connect at all levels. And that includes emotions. Do you think the highest level of interpreting can be done without bringing emotions into the job? Or do you think it's necessary per definition to bring emotion into the job? I think that it's ne- it's necessary for you to connect with the emotion of the speaker. If you're for you to actually understand and capture what somebody's saying, you have to have empathy, you have to understand and almost feel. I think the interpreter mm-hmm. almost has to feel a little bit of what the person's feeling. Mm-hmm. And that is almost the the what we talk about when we talk about being impartial is like, you know, let's say you're in the doctor's office and you're interpreting for somebody who wants an abortion and you're against abortion. You have to be able to put yourself in their foot, in their feet, in their shoes. <laughs> yes, in their yes. shoes. <laughs> put yourself <laughs> in their foot. You know, that makes sense. <laughs> put yourself in their shoes. And connect with what they're asking for and going through at that moment and not with what you think and what you feel. So I I don't think you can separate it. I mean, I think that's you can't truly understand what somebody's saying if you if you just say, well, there's not going to be any emotion involved. I mean, a message has emotion to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, not all messages. If it's, you know, instructions for how to put together an Ikea Ikea bed. (laughs) Yeah, Ikea table. Yes. There's no emotions in there, but um, in many, in a lot of communication, there is. And so I think as interpreters, we're connecting with them at that level. You know, I think of the time that I, that I almost choked up. It was somebody talking about toiling in the fields and it was their immigrant story and, you know, why they came to this country and what they had done to make it work. And I've never worked in the fields. And that's when I got emotional when I said those words, because I was picturing this man toiling away and his, you know, all the losses in his life. Yeah. That's beautiful. And, and I don't think that's wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, and again, I didn't, you know, I didn't affect the message. This person was, you know, giving a deposition talking about their life. Mm -hmm. Now I, I understand, you know, I understand that it's, 
it's a little bit unfortunate that it's those things that that go viral that get the media. It's like if the interpreter makes a mistake, if the interpreter gets emotional, if the interpreter. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's part of the message. Speaking of different ways of communicating and sharing the messages that come out of Ukraine, there was a move by a Polish news outlet, which is uh, Belsat, a Poland based television channel that primarily broadcasts news in Polish, Russian and Belarusian and English is adding Ukrainian to its slate of languages in a response to the fighting in Ukraine. This is because Russia may be working to limit Ukraine's access to reliable news, with the British Ministry of Defense tweeting that Russia will likely target the country's communication infrastructure. News outlets should consider a move like that in times of war? Yeah, that that I really like. I mean, I think that's really interesting to have it in, in that language, for sure. Yeah. The language is really interesting. I don't know. Do we know anything about how they're doing that? Like who's I don't writing? I don't. But this brings up an interesting uh, topic. We are working on an article about Nordic news channels who are going to make an effort to create all the news about the war in Ukraine in Russian to make it available to Russians to offer information to Russians that they can compare to what they're being spoon fed in their own country. Now that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's even more interesting because there's so much propaganda in Russia and people yeah. don't have access to the news. And, you know, I think in you, in Ukraine, in, in Ukrainian, it's really important as well, but they're kind of under, <laughs> under so much right now that there might be other more important things. And, if you can communicate directly with Russians and other others who just aren't getting the full picture, who don't understand their role in the world or their government's role. Yeah. Um, that could be really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. But then how do you get it to them? Is it still the old internet? You know, do you see the value of newspapers increasing again, where content is curated and fact-checked. Newspapers, magazines, of course, you know, we publish a magazine and you know that you can have a higher degree of trust in those articles than, you know, if you have to weed through 500 articles on the same topic that are online. Not only is there just so much information out there, but it's also hard sometimes to understand where it comes from. So what what is your personal preference? Are you an internet reader? Do you go down the rabbit holes or do you also still get a newspaper, a magazine? Do you appreciate that medium or do you use both and, and try to balance it? Yeah, I, I use both plus radio. So I'm still, my first love is public radio. Mm. That's when I, when I was in, when I was in journalism school, I took a class on, you know, radio news. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And my professor said, well, you're, you're too in love with it. Cause it, I, it was a very nostalgic thing for me because my parents used to play uh, NPR growing up before I moved yeah. to Brazil, but in Brazil, they didn't have NPR. So it was very, <laughs> so, you know, my, he's like, you get, you have to focus on the actual, like learn how to write for, for radio. Uh, and then of course he said, well, radio is dead, which I think is interesting because it's not anymore. Now we have podcasts, no, exactly. but, um, so I'm between radio and I do, I do very much like print. I have, I have several magazines that I get and try to keep up with. And then I read online as well. 
And that's what I try to, you know, when I find myself going down the rabbit hole of non-journalistic sources, like social media, I'll be like, you know what, let me go, let me turn on New York Times on my phone instead of just scrolling through Instagram. Yeah. Because then I'm going to actually get news and something edifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think that curation process and that the fact checking is, is crucial. I think it's really important. Yeah. 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 Now we're going to talk about a letter. And I don't know if there's any Gen Z listeners on the show, but um, the the letter Z has become somewhat of a military identifier to the Russian army. And um, these Z markings were first spotted in February as Russian vehicles and tanks assembled along the border of Ukraine. At the outset, some military experts hypothesized that the marks were primarily there to help identify troops in combat and reduce friendly fire, not unlike the stripes used during the Normandy landing in 1944. But since then, the Russian invasion has acquired the nickname Operation Z, and the Z has become a symbol of pro-war movement across Russia. Now, a letter or a symbol can mean a lot, but letters are so widely used, not like a symbol, which can be very iconic and and focused on one, you know, one message, like, I don't know, think the swastika, you know, we don't use that in our writing, but the letter Z is such an interesting thing because it's also a letter that we'll use. Interestingly, it does not exist in the Cyrillic Russian alphabet, but it does exist in Ukrainian. So what do you think it signifies that they picked that letter specifically and, um, you know, how do we as users of the letter Z, you know, how, how do we interpret that as a message from from Russia and what it means to them? Yeah, that, that part was what fascinated and confused me at the same time, because if they're they're including a letter, right, because it's the Russians that are using the Z, they're including a letter that's not their own yeah. <laughs> um, as they as they try to overtake a country. So it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure of what, of what that is and, and kind of what is the, what was the initial impetus for it? Yeah. Do you think it's going to damage what the letter Z means for other uh, cultures or for other generations? Yeah. I, I remember growing up being a huge fan of Zorro who leaves a big Z everywhere. Yeah. And so yeah. for me it stands for, you know, heroism and justice. Um, and uh, as some people know as well, as an example, the swastika is also stands for the the god of thunder in Norway, and you know it has all these different meanings, but it can never be unlinked from yeah. Hitler and German, uh, you know, and uh, Nazi Germany. So, are we going to be facing that threat with the letter Z? Yeah, it's it I, it's possible. I, I think it's too early to tell though how much it's gonna do. You know how yeah. much it's going to take over. It reminds me of something in that happened in Brazil, which, you know, the World Cup and other events were always a big deal in Brazil, you know, for soccer and whatever. And we would all wear the jersey, the soccer jersey. And kind of anything that you were celebrating about Brazil, you would wear the soccer jersey, at least for me growing up. And with the new administration in Brazil, um, they somehow kind of took took that over for mm. themselves. And so now if you wear Brazilian colors or the soccer jersey or anything like that, you're actually show, it's you're showing 
that you support the president. Yellow and green. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is like really sad. You know, what am I going to do with all my yellow and green t-shirts? <laughs> all my think about shirts. that with the American flag it is a beautiful flag. I remember it was all over our jeans in Europe uh, when I grew up and I wore jeans with the American flag and shirts with the American flag in the 90s. And uh, now it's it's connected to the alt-right movement pretty much. And they've adopted it and, and changed it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you get the thin blue line American flag and the red line American flag and the old looking rusted American flag. Right. And so you associate it with something else to the point that uh, Democrats and, and liberals no longer want to fly the flag even on Fourth of July. Yeah, that's very true. And it it, it becomes a symbol of aggression. I mean, it's an aggressive thing. It's like, you know, these gigantic flags yeah. of, of pride, but it's, mm-hmm. yeah. So maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe that is what the Z feels like then. Yeah. My sister visited from the Netherlands and we were driving around in America and she uh, always commented on seeing the flag. She's like, why did the, why all these flags, you know, it's so aggressive, blah, blah. And then we drove into Canada and there was a giant Canadian flag on an overpass over the highway. She goes, oh, it's such a cute flag. You know? Yeah, it's all context, right? What what it, you know, if you don't know the context, you're not going to get the same emotional reaction from it. And now our emotional reaction to the Ukrainian flag globally, which is being shared everywhere, yeah. is, uh, uh, is, the, is one of empathy and sadness. But maybe the flag to them represents, you know, to the Ukrainians represents strength and independence. And they have a completely different emotional reaction to what we're having right now, what we are creating right Mm -hmm. now as an emotional response around their flag. Do we get to take that ownership of it or do they have ownership over what their flag is supposed to mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's the what's the term for that? Uh, Cultural appropriation. Yes. How much of it is that, you know, many of us don't even know much about Ukraine and now we're wearing the colors and supporting them. And it's like, you know, and hopefully this this support will last longer and it's not just a fad, um, a passing fad, Mm -hmm. because I don't think the I mean, the war and certainly the effects of it aren't going to be temporary. Yeah. How many you know, how many refugees are we up to now? Million and a half. Yeah. Is it that? I think it's at least that. Do you have any language skills that you can offer to to the people affected by the crisis? Or do you not speak any Russian or Ukrainian? No, I don't speak any Russian or Ukrainian. No, I. it's funny because in, in the part of Massachusetts where I live, sometimes people ask me if I'm Russian because my name is, you know, Elena, which could be Spanish, Russian. Yeah. But no, no, I unfortunately don't have any. Any of those skills. Yeah. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your uh, stay there at the long weekend at this film festival. Film and music. Yeah. South by Southwest. I'm I'm quite excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can uh, write a little thing about your experience. We can put it on the website. That's an idea. Oh, I'd love to do oh. that. Sure. Yeah. yeah that'd be well, cool. I, I look forward to seeing that. But uh, for now, thank you so much for for joining us and um, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you. Have Have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Localization Today. To subscribe to Multilingual Magazine, go to multilingual.com slash subscribe.